morning, everyone. My name is Stephanie. I'm one of the pastors here at Mill City, and I just wanted to welcome you one more time. I bet there's a lot of you I've never been able to meet before, and so during this time, I'd love to connect with you online. So you can find me at Pastor Steph on all the things. I'd love to connect with you in that way. So check it out there. Um, when I was thinking about the instrument that I would love to play, I actually brought me back to the instrument I grew up playing. And I'm not even sure if people in this room know the instrument, the one instrument I grew up playing, and it was the trumpet. And so everyone can be thankful that I gave that up, especially you, Ashish. You can be thankful that I gave up the trumpet because it was not going to go well for anyone. And I don't think I'd pick that to be a maestro, to be honest. I also want to say happy Father's Day to all of you dads out there and those of you who have been loving people as mentors and grandpas and dads. Special shout out to my brother and to my father-in-law as well. We're so thankful for all the investment that you make into our lives. We're having this conversation right now called Through a Gospel Lens. It's on the, the two books of First and Second Corinthians, these two letters that the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, this port city in the first century. And Paul, who is an early leader in the first century church, is writing these letters to this church that he helped start. This is a church that he was a part of their beginning. And now he's not with them anymore. And he hears that they're having a hard time that they're struggling in a number of ways. And so he writes this letter to them as a friend, as a mentor, and appropriately, as, as Steph Fetter talked about last week, as a spiritual father to these people that he loves. And Paul gives this young church a lot of advice, like dads do, all right? And as he's giving this advice in these letters, if I was going to sum up the advice that he gives in First and Second Corinthians, this is what I would say his summary of his encouragement is to them. Paul is encouraging this young church to look at every area of their lives through a gospel lens. Paul's encouraging them to look at every area of their life as though they're looking through the lens of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus. But here's the thing, that doesn't come naturally. We need to choose to look through a gospel lens, through the good news of Jesus, this is easier said than done because as Steph talked about last week, there's so many other lenses that we're tempted to look through when we are looking at the world around us. And sometimes we don't even realize the lenses that we're looking through as we, uh, as we approach our lives. Sometimes we have to pay attention to even realize it. So it's a choice, probably a daily choice to look at our lives through a gospel lens. But if we really believe that the good news is good, if we really believe that God has given us this good news in the person of Jesus, that can compel us through love to choose to put on these lenses of the gospel every day and to look through our lives that way. At the very end of 1 Corinthians, if you turn to chapter 15, Paul summarizes the good news of Jesus. There's kind of this chapter where he's kind of summarizing it. And he's basically saying, God loved us so much that God decided to come to this earth in the person of Jesus. And then to prove that love even further, Jesus died taking on the brokenness and all of the sin in the world, individual sin, corporate sin, systemic sin and brokenness, so that death and brokenness doesn't have to have power over us anymore. And that someday we'll live forever with God in this restored world where the death and the brokenness is gone completely. And then Paul says, Jesus came back to life and we'll be given a new life just like he came back to life. Or as Paul puts it, we'll experience a resurrection, kind of a big word, but this idea of a brand new life, just like Jesus. Listen to how Paul kind of declares the, the good news of Jesus at the very end of 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 55. Paul says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. We can stand firm. We can give ourselves fully to the work that God has given to us and it will not be in vain. I don't know who else needed to hear that right now, but I know I did. I needed to hear that the work that I'm trying to do to love other people with the love of Jesus is not in vain. That the work that we do of justice to join in God's right making, making wrong things right is not done in vain. That the the work to try to figure out what it looks like to love our neighbors as we love ourselves is not done in vain. Right there in verse 58, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Choosing every day to put on a gospel lens is not in vain. Even when you want to look at life in almost any other way, which we're all tempted to do so, the choice to put on a gospel lens to see the world through the victory of Jesus is worth it, no matter what. But what does it look like to make that choice? That's what we started talking about last week. We're going to talk about for these next few weeks. What does it look like to choose to put on a gospel lens? Now, when I was in second grade was the first time that I got glasses. And maybe some of you could put in the chat that you were one of those little kids that got glasses because I would feel like I'm not alone because it was kind of hard to be one of the first kids to get glasses when you're little. And I remember that I even tried to go to school without them on. But of course, I'm nearsighted. So if I take these off, I can maybe see clearly about to hear and then things start to get fuzzy. I can barely tell who's in the room with me. That's how nearsighted I am. I can only see what is close up. So you can imagine the problem that I faced in school right away. I could read the books in front of me. I could read the worksheets. But of course, I couldn't read the blackboard. There was no whiteboards back then. I couldn't read the blackboard. I couldn't see who was speaking on the other side of the room. And I wasn't able to see what was going on. I couldn't make out who was talking. And I had to start wearing my glasses. Why? Because I was missing the big picture of what was going on around me. I couldn't see what was going on around me. I was missing the big picture. I want to suggest that spiritually speaking, we are all nearsighted. Spiritually speaking, we are all nearsighted. I'm not trying to convince you all that you're physically nearsighted so I can feel better about how uh, tough it was for me as a kid. That probably would have helped if everyone was with me on that, but that wasn't true. I mean, spiritually speaking, we are all nearsighted. We are most aware of what is happening right around us. We are most aware of what impacts us directly. It's actually kind of difficult for us to see beyond that naturally without making the choice to see beyond our nearsighted reality. It's rare for people to truly care about what doesn't impact them or their family or their close circle of friends. It's actually pretty rare to care about things that don't impact you directly. And because of this, we hardly notice the cultural default that many would call a rugged individualism. Rugged individualism, kind of an intense term, but dominant North American culture is deeply individualistic And it severely lacks an ability to have a natural communal perspective. But it's become so normal that I don't think we even realize just how nearsighted we are. And it works pretty well for some and terribly for others. The nearsightedness of individualism works great for those who have the most resources, right? The more self-sufficient you are, the more you can function well in an individualistic world. In fact, sometimes it feels like less of a bother. The more you have your needs met, the less you have to care about what's beyond your view. 
that you can't naturally see. So instead of putting on the lens of empathy or compassion or, or choosing a lens of community or a deep care for neighbor, even if they're not your friend or family member, this nearsightedness prevails beyond that. And what's produced around us is what I see as a default towards selfishness, towards self-preservation, towards self-centered motives. And it's not hard for us to see if we just pay attention to what's going on around us, we can see this default. I would absolutely admit, I definitely see this spiritual nearsightedness in my life, not just my physical nearsightedness with my eyes. This way of looking at the world, it feels like the norm to me, honestly. It's almost to the point where we don't even think it could actually be bad for us. But it is. It is bad for us. It's bad for everyone, even for the people who feel like their, their needs are met and they can choose that rugged individualism and it's working for them. It's not good. It's not how God created us. It's not what God wants for us. Now, the church in Corinth, they were not a culture that was uh, elevating individualism quite the same way that we do. I'm not trying to make a direct comparison. The culture back then was very different than the culture of, of dominant North American culture. However, these folks in the church in Corinth that Paul is writing to, they were making some pretty selfish decisions. They were using pretty self-centered motives when it came to what they decided to do. When it came to how they chose to live, there was a disregard for how it affected other people within even their own small, relatively tight-knit community. This group had a lot of diversity, a diversity of background, of ethnicity, of socioeconomic status. So you can imagine with that type of diversity, division can easily come, right? But the choices were being made that led to even more division. Choices were being made to lead to more division than they already came in with. There was a lack of empathy that was distinctly happening. For instance, when they were gathering together as a community, people were talking over each other, interrupting each other, and generally acting as though some people mattered more than others. And these are people in their own community. Here's the reality though, right? In a world that's without God's spirit and without God's love, that's the default, right? Look out for yourself. Make sure you and yours are doing okay. Elevate people like you above other people. This is what we see in the world around us, isn't it? This is the default. This is what's been making headlines for months, maybe even years. But Paul is saying that Jesus followers are to be different. Maybe this is the default of the world, but Jesus followers are to be different. The default might be nearsightedness, but we are supposed to be different. We are to choose the lens of the gospel, the gospel lens that sees unity, but also diversity that sees the community as one without erasing uniqueness that brings everyone together as a group. Paul in this letter in chapter 12 uses the metaphor of a body to communicate this. He's using a metaphor of a body to communicate this. Let me read 1 Corinthians 12, just the beginning here, the first couple of verses um, in starting in verse 12. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, and we are all given one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So Paul chooses this metaphor of the body intentionally, right? Okay, just think about it practically, because bodies have many different parts, but all the different parts are very different and they have different functions. So even though there's one spirit that Paul says, the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, there's just one spirit of God that brings people together. We aren't to check our uniqueness 
or our diversity or our culture or our gifting at the door. That would not result in a body that works and functions together. Paul right here in verse 13 is directly referencing the Jews and the Gentiles, two groups that we could dig into for a long time, but they're actually two groups of people that represent a lot more diversity, various ethnic backgrounds and multiple cultures that are coming into the space. As I said earlier, this is a very diverse group of people in so many ways, just like many of our communities are today. And Paul says the body is not made up of one part, but of many. When you use the body metaphor, it kind of makes sense pretty easily, doesn't it? Let's continue on in reading in verse 15. Now imagine this with me, guys. Now if the foot should say, just fun to imagine a foot talking, okay? Now if a foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to a body. It would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if an ear, okay, we got a talking ear now. Now if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. It would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, that's an interesting picture. Where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just where he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Now, just for fun, imagine a whole bunch of ears just flopping around because that's all we had. It's a pretty weird picture, isn't it? Or maybe just imagine a bunch of hands walking around like in the Adams family. Some of you are maybe too young to know about that. But you know what I'm talking about? That weird, creepy hand. If you just go down this road for just a little while thinking about all of these uh, body parts that are just separated and all just the same, it turns out in your head to be like a really weird horror story that you don't want to think about too much. So we're going to move on from that. Let me read the rest of what Paul says about this metaphor. But as you listen, imagine the implications for us for this default of nearsightedness and individualism. As I described that earlier, listen to what Paul is saying and how this impl is, is implicated for us. 1 Corinthians 12, 21 through 27. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. So Paul's offering this metaphor to the body of the church, this, this body metaphor to this part of the church in Corinth to help them overcome their spiritual nearsightedness that they were having. And so today we have an opportunity as well to say, how does this speak into us and our community? And Paul is writing to the church within the city of Corinth, and it's still a small community, but it's growing. And so for our purposes, I actually think this metaphor is more helpful if we don't just think about Mill City Church or maybe whatever local church, whoever's watching this belongs to, but it's better to think about maybe like the church in, North, in Northeast Minneapolis or all of the Jesus followers in the city that we live in. What would it look like for us, all of us, to live into this metaphor of the body that Paul says is the body of Christ, is the body of Jesus, that sees with Jesus' eyes, that listens with Jesus' ears, that is the hands and the feet of Jesus to the community, with a heart that beats together with the heart of Jesus, with, with people together coming together, crying together the tears of Jesus when people are suffering who are a part of the body.
crying the tears of joy, the tears of Jesus, when people who are a part of the body are being celebrated or honored. We can choose to live into this metaphor, but to do that, we have to look through a gospel lens. And when we do that, when we look through a gospel lens, it reveals to us what I think Paul's trying to say here in this passage to this church. Let me put this up here on the screen for a second. Here are the three things that I see Paul saying a gospel lens reveals a community that has unity as well as uniqueness, honors each other and chooses empathy, has unity as well as uniqueness, honors each other and chooses empathy. Let me break these down really quick. First, a gospel lens reveals a community that has unity as well as uniqueness. Unity as well as uniqueness. God's spirit should, in this body metaphor, be working through everybody. Because if the spirit wasn't a part of one body, it wouldn't be doing anything, right? It would just be useless. The spirit of God fills the body, and the human body, just like it has many parts, serves all these different unique roles. And Paul's talking about here these roles to build up the church. And I think we've seen glimpses of this in the last few months. I know I've seen Jesus followers in in Minneapolis come together in the last few months in ways that I've never seen before. The COVID crisis, as well as the uprising following George Floyd's murder here has unified, in my opinion, a lot of us in, within Mill City Church and also strengthened our connections with other churches and other partners that we have that are all people who are saying we're loving our community in the name of Jesus, even though we're a part, different parts of the body, different churches, different communities. But unity comes at a cost because we have to be willing for unity to work through the struggles that always come with truly celebrating and honoring differences, with truly celebrating and honoring the uniqueness of other people. Because this is a struggle for us with all types of difference. And it's when we realize that there is injustice, then, and we aren't dealing with that injustice, then unity is actually impossible. It's a, a precursor for unity, is dealing with the injustice that's happening around us. The second thing I think we see here is a a gospel lens reveals a community that honors each other, right? We saw that in verse 23, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that, that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. I learned something new when I was studying this passage this week, and that is that the Roman empire who ruled the day here in cities like Corinth at that time in first century, they actually had used that body metaphor before. I didn't know that. So people would likely be familiar with it. But the way that they had used the metaphor, the Roman empire, these oppressive leaders, is they had used that metaphor to try and keep poor people oppressed. To say to these poor people who were so poor that they were starting to want to have an uprising because they were in so desperate need of what their actual needs, they, they were saying, look, 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 okay, you're a part of us. You're not separate from us. You're just not as important as other parts of the body. You're like a stomach, not as important as the eyes or the ears, but you, but we still need you. We still need you. So please be a good stomach. We just really need you to be a good stomach, even though you're not as valuable as the rest. That's terrible, isn't it? And so when Paul is saying this, he's distinctly trying to say something different than what the Roman Empire had been saying. Those parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. If you were to look at this word in the Greek, you could add other definitions like essential or necessary, or even this idea of being bonded together like a family. You can't separate it. These parts are indispensable. And so Paul is flipping the script on the idea that there is this hierarchy of importance. He's saying, not so with you, not so with us who are Jesus followers. 
this hierarchy of importance that the Roman leaders were using to manipulate other people, Paul says, no, that's not who we are. And finally, a gospel lens reveals a community that chooses empathy. And I'm saying chooses empathy because I think, I think it is a choice. In verse 25, its parts should have equal concern for each other. Naturally, we won't have equal concern for each other. I don't think so. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. So we know, we know the importance of empathy at this point. Sociologists who are doing the work of peace building around the world in the most areas of the most extreme conflict recognize that empathy is critical and crucial in order to move into peace building in the world. We also know that empathy is something we can choose and that empathy is something that's generative. When we start to choose empathy, we don't run out of empathy. We grow in our capacity for compassion. Okay, so how can we do this? How can we be a community that chooses unity as well as uniqueness, honors each other, and chooses empathy? How can we do this? And I think it starts with this. I think it starts with each one of us as individuals and then as families and as a community choosing to put on a gospel lens. Just like I chose to put on my glasses this morning. Now you might say, hold on, Steph, of course you put on your glasses this morning. How hard of a choice was that? Well, why, why do I put my glasses on every single day without even thinking about it? Because now that I've seen what it looks like to have these lenses on, I can't go back. I can't go back to what it was like to be nearsighted. I don't want to be nearsighted anymore. I want to see through these lenses that are allowing me to see beyond myself. The way when we start to see through a gospel lens, we start to see things that we can't unsee. You may not choose to keep looking, but your mind's eye cannot unsee what's been revealed. When you have seen something, when you've been able to see what I can see through my glasses, I don't want to go back. The more we choose to see our community as one that must have unity and uniqueness, the more we choose to see our community as one that honors each other above ourselves, the more we choose empathy instead of selfishness, the more uncomfortable we will become with nearsightedness. This last month, as we've witnessed this uprising resulting after the murder of George Floyd, we have seen an opportunity for a lot of us to see things that we've never seen before. And I don't just mean what's on the other end of iPhone cameras. I mean, we've had the opportunity to see how systems have held people back in our country and in our world. And if you see something, you can't unsee it. After you see it, after your nearsightedness is corrected, you can then ask yourself, do I want to go back to nearsightedness or will I choose to put on a gospel lens? Little second grade Steph, she felt uncomfortable wearing glasses. She, I didn't want to wear glasses when other people around me weren't. And I think we can feel uncomfortable when we are choosing to wear a gospel lens and other people around us aren't. But will we choose to wear the gospel lens anyway? Certainly, racial injustice is not the only reality we have an opportunity to see through a gospel lens. There's so many other things that God shows us. When God shows us something, maybe the selfishness within our own hearts, or maybe God reveals to us the suffering in the lives of other people, maybe a neighbor that lives right near us, or when God reveals to us ways in which we are living in fear and anxiety, when God reveals something to you, you can't unsee what God has revealed but you can choose to stop looking. You can choose to not wear the gospel lenses that change the way we see everything around us, including ourselves, like Steph spoke about last week. So if we're going to live into this metaphor that Paul is offering us, we need to choose to look through a gospel lens on a daily basis. 
So I have just three choices that I think help us do this, okay? Three choices that help us do this. The first choice is choosing what I call a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit to bring unity and uniqueness. Do you recognize that one of the main roles of the Holy Spirit is to bring unity in diversity? Uh, in Pentecost, it was to break down the barrier of language where people could speak to each other. And the Spirit today can tear down walls between people and give us the opportunity to see the beauty in diversity and give us the opportunity to see how much we lose when every voice and every gifting is not given the opportunity to contribute and to thrive. The second choice I think we have is to choose God's love as our motivation so that we truly can honor other people. Studies on motivation show that selfishness and self-preservation are way more powerful motivators than love and honor. Most people will only change when they see that it will benefit them. But if we see ourselves as one body, the way that Paul's describing, we start to see we instead of me. We start to see we instead of me. And love can compel us more than the power of selfishness. Love can compel us to honor one another above ourselves. And then finally, I think the third choice is we can choose to ask God for empathy. And I just want to encourage you. What if you ask God to show you what it would be like truly to feel what your brother and sister feels when they're hurting? as though we are hurting too. I think God will lead you, each one of us, to who we specifically need to have empathy for in our lives. But I want to encourage you this. I want to encourage you to pray what I call a dangerous prayer. Pray a dangerous prayer like this. God, give me empathy for someone or a group of people you want me to have empathy for. So that if they suffer, I suffer with them. So that if they are honored, I rejoice with them. And I want you to trust me. I think this is a dangerous prayer. I've prayed this prayer over the years when I've dared and God has used it to break my heart a thousand times. One of the groups that God has given me out of many that God has given me empathy for is the, the mothers of black sons in our city. And I've cried and cried just from empathy. So how could I even imagine their actual pain, their actual fear on a daily basis? So as we go into this time of worship, I want you to consider that dangerous prayer. And I want to leave with you these three choices. I'm hoping that you can reflect on them as we go into the time of worship, but also that you could take them with you into your prayer this week. So we'll put them up here on the screen. Let me leave these choices with you. To choose a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. To choose God's love as your motivation. To choose to ask God for empathy. And like Paul says, now you are the body of Christ. And each one of you is a part of it.